Hey y'all, great to be back with you, and thanks for joining me as we continue into 1 Corinthians. Uh, we'll start in chapter 8 today, uh, but there's a lot of context here, and it's bigger than just this chapter. So yeah, I'm going to take a minute for setup. The chapter's short, so that part should go pretty quick. But I really need to set up the next three chapters and talk about the, Paul's argument as a whole, because this really is one unit that covers three chapters. And if we don't look at it that way, we're going to miss the point, and many people do in this section of Scripture. So I'm going to start with a review. I'll set it, set up the next three chapters, and then we'll get into chapter eight. And God willing, I'll do two more videos over the next couple of weeks that'll address chapter nine and then chapter 10. And at the end of 10, I'll wrap up this section and we'll move on to the rest of the book. All right. So starting with the review, this letter is written to a baby church in Corinth, right? We've been over this before if you've, if you've been following me through the whole series. So it's written to this young church that's immature. Paul's very explicit about that. And he says their problem, and he's going to address a lot of problems in this letter, and they have an awful lot of problems. But he says your, your real problem, the root of your problem, is your carnal. You're worldly. You're using natural thinking to try to run the church. You're not thinking spiritually. You're not acting spiritually. You can't comprehend spiritual things because you're still thinking in human ways. And so as a result, what you're doing is you're taking the foundation of Jesus Christ, and then you're building on it with worldly wisdom. Well, what you get is a monstrosity that when the end comes and the day reveals it is the language he uses, um, when the elements burn, that's going to burn too. When, when the world is destroyed, that thinking will be destroyed. When Jesus comes and says, here's the way this really works, all that's going to fall apart. And so you need to stop it. You need to have some maturity and build on that foundation of Jesus Christ that has been laid with spiritual thinking in the kingdom of God and build the church right with things that are going to last. So then he gets into chapters five, six, and seven, where he talks about sex. And I've, I've said before, I said it in the last video, I really think that this natural thinking feeds into this. A lot of people see this book as a list of issues and it is, but these issues are linked. And that's why he organizes his, his discussion here, his letter to them the way he does. And so he's saying, look, you're thinking like Greek philosophers with spiritual and physical dualism. And, and you're, you're arguing from various branches of philosophy how Christianity should work. And Christianity is not a philosophy. It's a following of Jesus. It's a spiritual thing, not a philosophical thing. So stop it. Uh, so in terms of sexual morality in chapters five and six, he says, hey, guys, uh, you can't be sexually immoral. I know you're not under the law. And so not being under the law may mean that, well, legally, then adultery, fornication, whatever is okay. But you're under service to Christ. You're under love for him and you're under grace and you need to act like it. And it's not that you're, you, you've got this, your spirit made alive. And so your spirit's going to heaven and you're going to escape the body someday. So, so that's all well and good. And so meanwhile, what you do in the body doesn't matter. That is not true. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. The two are joined. The spirit and the flesh are joined. So the flesh does matter. That's really what he's saying there with the body being the temple of the Holy Spirit. What happens in your flesh does matter. Act like it. Act like you're the temple of God. You, are you going to join Jesus to a prostitute? Because that's what you're doing. Stop it. So on the flip side, then in chapter seven, the counter argument would be, well, then it'd be better not have sex at all. Right. Because sex is dirty. Sex is bad. 
Well, no, that's not true either. He doesn't say it, but Scripture's clear. The two shall become one flesh. God made it that way from the beginning. That was not a corruption. That was before sin. So it's not that sex categorically is bad. And so in, in answer to the question, should I give up my sex life even if I'm married, he says that's not yours to give. That's, that belongs to your spouse, and it's a beautiful thing. And that's the way God made it, so, so stop it. You can't just give that up. You've got a covenant you've made. Uh, now, in terms of those who aren't married, he says, this is my opinion. I'm going I'm to explain a principle and tell you I apply it, but you, your mileage may vary. You, you talk to God about it and see what God has called you to. And he specifically says, I speak from as a, somebody who's trustworthy, but this is not from the Lord. This is from Paul. And what he says is, I think it would be better to not be married so you can just serve Christ. But that's not because of the spirit flesh issue. It's because I don't want to interfere with being able to serve Christ. I'm fully dedicated to that. And he's going to bring that up again in chapter 9. On the other hand, if you get married, you have a right to be married. There's, there's no sin in that. That's something pure and holy that God created, and that's fine. It just, in Paul's view, being wholly dedicated to the gospel is a better thing. But to each his own, God's called different people to different things. He's very, very clear on that. Now, don't get divorced. Don't sleep around. Don't have 15 different marriages. All that, yes. But for a monogamous one man, one woman, for life marriage, Paul says there's nothing wrong with that. Stop thinking that sex is bad because it's in the flesh. Don't do that. Okay? And so now we get into a different issue. And this really, I, I think this issue was controversial enough that it allows Paul to lay out some principles that really apply to all of this. And it has to do with rights. You meant, I mentioned a minute ago that we have a right to marriage. Paul talks about giving up his right. And he says that specifically in, in chapter 9. So we've got two things going on here. We've got a specific issue of meat offered to idols. And I'll explain some background on that. But then we've got the broader principle. And so Paul, in chapter 8, lays out the issue and his position. In chapter 9, he lays out a broader principle, using two examples from his own life as an example, as, as examples of the, the principle, which is walk in love and give up your rights as required. And we saw Jesus do that too, laying down his life. And then in chapter 10, he reapplies it. So that's kind of the flow of the argument. And then it's going to flow into uh, behavior in the church and idolatry and so forth as, as we get further into the book. But the, the big, big thing to understand here is we've got an issue of meat offered to idols. We can take the issue and see how, and, and Paul is out of the principle, we see how he applies the principle to this issue, and then we can take the principle and apply it to modern issues. And I think this is very timely Right now, as we talk about a lot of things with human rights in terms of restrictions due to coronavirus, in terms of the election, in terms of a Supreme Court nomination, in, in terms of all these things that are happening as I'm recording this, this is a very relevant topic for Christians in our day. Okay, so background on meat offered to idols. Pagan world, Roman world, right? Lots of temples everywhere. Lots of sacrifices going on. And not just in the temples. Big gathering kind of celebration meals, parties, guild gatherings, they, those sorts of things. They typically would pour out a drink offering and dedicate the meal to, to the idol uh, before they ate. And, and in temples, there was constantly sacrifices, and then they'd cook them. And you could go in there, get a free meal or very, very cheap all the time if you were hungry. 
and that there was too much meat even for that. So then they'd sell it cheap in the market. But if you think about it, just like Markdown meat at Walmart, once they killed it with no refrigeration, they need to sell it now or it's gone, right? So they, they sell it cheap. Um, on the other hand, if you don't want to eat meat offered to idols, like the Jews, who, looking back to the Old Testament, you can understand their aversion to any connection with idolatry for their people. So they had their own markets where they had to buy live animals at much greater expense and kill them according to the law, according to kosher rules. And so it was a lot more expensive. And so these Gentile Christians in particular are saying, look, we don't have to be kosher. We're not under the law. Who cares if it's been offered to idol? It's food. What's the big deal? And Jews are going, no, 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 no. Idolatry, stop it. And there's this big dispute in the church. And even some Gentiles are, t are torn over the issue. It was a big enough controversy that the Council of Jerusalem in Acts chapter 16, if I remember, I forgot to write down the chapter number, but it, the Council of Jerusalem addresses this when they address things like circumcision and other keeping of the law. And they said, don't eat meat offered to idols. And that's binding on Gentiles, according to them. And now Paul's going to address the issue again in another way. And a lot of people read this and say Paul's contradicting that council. He's not. And I'm going to explain why. You have to read all three chapters together to understand that. And that's why I say I want to present the whole argument. Uh, so the, the big picture, and I'm going to get into the specifics, is, yeah, you have a right to eat meat offered idols. It's not a big deal. It doesn't actually matter. Food doesn't contaminate you. Jesus was clear on that. On the other hand, if it causes a Christian brother to stumble, stop it. And if it causes a Gentile to look at you and say, see, you're no different than us. You just have one more God in the pantheon, then stop it. And so therefore, no, you should not eat meat offered idols. Give up your right. That, that's his overall argument. Okay. So without further ado, let's get into what he actually says here. Starting in verse one of chapter eight. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Now look at that again and look where the quotation marks are. We've talked about this before, that sometimes it seems he's quoting passages from their letter and saying, you said this, but Greek doesn't have quotation marks, so we don't know for sure. Uh, but I, I think this is probably at least getting the point of what he's saying rather than... It, it, without the quotation marks, some translations, this looks a little confusing. I, I've struggled with this in my past. So he says, okay, the issue I'm addressing now, I'm changing gears. I was talking about sex and marriage and stuff like that. Now, concerning food offered to idols, you asked me about this too. So here we go. All of us know possess knowledge. So I'm going to put that in more modern terminology. Everybody knows, right? Everybody knows that's not true. Everybody knows this is the way it is. Makes sense? That's kind of what he's getting across there. That's not his words, but we're translating Greek into English and you lose a little bit of the colloquial meaning there. So I'm going to paraphrase. Everybody knows. And he says, well, that knows is great and all, but it makes you proud. It makes you haughty. It makes you puffed up. And if you think about it, when you, when you use that kind of terminology or I use that kind of terminology or anybody else, typically... We are being condescending, aren't we? If I say, everybody knows you can't do that, I'm implying you're stupid if you don't know that. I'm implying you're ignorant. I'm implying that I'm better than you 
if we have a dis disparity of knowledge here. The very fact that I'm having to say it says there's something lacking in your understanding, right? So be careful. That That's, I think, what Paul's getting at with these first few verses. That knowledge makes you proud, that kind of knowledge. But love's going to build up, and that's the point of what he's saying over the next three chapters. If you think you know something, you don't know anything. You're not as smart as you think you are. And that points back to what he said in the first four chapters, right? That you're, you're thinking from worldly knowledge, and, and you've got a little bit of this Christian knowledge, and then you're just plugging it into your, your carnality and saying, let's roll with this, and, and you're the one that's ignorant. Stop it, okay? You, you don't know anything yet. If, if you think you know what's going on, that shows how ignorant you are, because there's a lot more to learn, which... I've heard an awful lot of very educated people say that, and I'm finding it true. The more education I get, the more I learn, the more I realize I don't know much. Because there's, I, what I wind up learning is how much more there is out there to learn, and that's true spiritually as well as with natural knowledge. Anyway, uh, so he says, but if you love God, God will know you. The point is to love God, love others. And if we're doing that, God comes to us, makes his home with us, as Jesus says in John 14. Got to keep that commandment to love each other, right? That, that's kind of the, the underlying theme of what Paul's saying here. Okay? So let's continue. I told, this was, told you this was going to go fairly quickly. Because when you, when you get the background, it's kind of self-explanatory. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, therefore, in light of the fact that you don't know anything, you just think you do, and you're being condescending and stop it, Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence. I'm going to pause there for just a second. That's the everybody knows. Everybody knows idols aren't real. They're just a big chunk of metal and wood and whatever, right? That's not actually a god. That's what he's getting across, trying to get across here. We know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no god but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from who all things are and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, who, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. All right. We know there's, there's many gods, but there's only one God. There's many lords, but there's only one Lord. So what's the big deal? Why does it matter that we, we've got this meat offered to idols? Because they're not real. Right? Offer, uh, offer your spaghetti to the flying spaghetti monster. Did it change the spaghetti? That's, that's the argument he's making. And we know this. That's true. He's agreeing with them. But there's more to the story. That, that's the key. So this is the knowledge he's saying puff, puffs up. Everybody knows idols aren't real, so what's the big deal? Why does it matter? Well, that's true. Okay? However... Here's the but. Here's the rest of the story. Not all possess this knowledge. For, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We're no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, Will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, 
If food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. Okay, that was the bigger chunk, but that's the, that's the end of the chapter. So, not everybody understands this. Not everybody knows. Some people, because they were so heavily involved in idolatry, they, they can't get past it. That's going to be problematic, okay? Best example I can come up with in our modern word for this is an alcoholic. An alcoholic comes to Jesus and says, okay, I need to quit drinking because I'm a drunk. And I, oh, yes, that's true. Okay, so do you invite him over to your house and have a drink and say, I've got freedom in Christ to have a drink? No, that would be bad. Right? Because you're just going to suck them back into a place they don't need to be. Paul's saying, there are things that can be wrong for them, but not wrong for you. If their conscience tells them they don't need to go there, then they don't need to go there. And it, it may be that this knowledge hasn't worked down into their heart. They, they know that idol's nothing. But do they really know that idol's nothing? Or do they feel like, I'm, I'm going back somewhere? Here's, here's another example, and this is probably a more biblical one. Um, because idolatry is frequently associated with adultery. So I've been married faithfully and happily for many, many years. If I go talk to another woman, is there a problem? No. Generally, no. I've, I have freedom to talk to people. My wife trusts me and I trust her and that's fine. What if I go talk to an ex-girlfriend? It's a little different, isn't it? It's kind of the point Paul's making. It is different. And so you need to be careful. And you don't need to look at people that are going to struggle with this and it's going to have a problem and it's going to cause them to stumble and say, what's wrong with you? Quit being proud. Quit being boastful. Quit being puffed up in your knowledge. You're not better than anybody else. Two terms I want to discuss here real quick. Right isn't exactly a concept the way we understand it in the ancient world. Okay, It's, it's not the same thing. The concept of rights as we have it came out during the Enlightenment. It's not even a thing back then. So the word Paul uses here is authority. And so it's like, I have the authority to claim this. I have the authority to do this. So I, I think right is a reasonable translation here. Um, but a lot of translations will say power. And I just want you to understand the reason why. I have the ability to claim this. I have the authority to claim this. I have the power to claim this because it's something due to me. I'm allowed to do this, so therefore I can. It's a right. That That's the concept of the way the word is used, all right? So I just wanted to, to, to make that clear, because if you're following along in a different translation, particularly something like King James, it's going to translate the word exousia as power, which that's, that's one way to say it, but it's power in the sense of authority, like Pilate had power or authority over Christ to crucify him. That's how the word is used, okay? So I just want you to understand where the right comes from there rather than power, if you're looking at translations and saying somebody changed the Bible. They did. It's It's... A lack of ability to directly translate. Uh, second thing, I want to talk about this concept of stumbling. And this is a concept we see throughout Scripture. And I think it's very important. And I wrote on this uh, recently, too. So this will be a review if you read that. And if not, well, here you go. Uh, the Greek word here is the root of our word scandal. Okay? And so I'm going to use a political example to show you what it means. It, it means, it does mean to cause to stumble or to fall or to fall away. But in a little different way than we typically think of it. All right, so uh, 
I'm going to use a political example, and I hate to, but it's the best thing I can do without getting too super offensive uh, by using somebody in the church. So here you go. Uh, our current president, Donald Trump, when he was candidate Trump, um, there there were some things he said about women uh, and how to treat women and so forth that were vulgar, uh, that that showed some disdain and some just some, some generally bad attitudes and were unsavory. Um, and he, this was well before the campaign even. And he was he was quoted or recorded as saying it. I don't remember which. And he, he admitted it. Yeah, I said that. But that, that's locker room talk. That's just guy talk. Everybody does that. It happens. Well, it's not really much of a defense, is it? And it, it was kind of a big scandal. Um, and especially for Christians who were supporting then-candidate Trump, uh, you know, how can you vote for somebody that talks about women that grab at him that way? If that gives you enough of the comment, I'm not going to repeat the vulgarity. Um, and and the response was, well, that was then, this is now. And um, I'm voting for president, not for uh, pastor. And, and there, there were some other reasonings why this is okay. But there were people who were his supporters that said, I'll still vote for him, but I'm not going to be nearly as vocal about it as a result of that. And there were people that said, actually, I'm just not going to vote now. And there were people that switched sides and voted for his opponent as a result of that. That's what a scandal is. It causes people to, to fall away, to remove support, to go another direction. And that's what the stumble is here, too. If it's going to cause your brother to break relationship with Christ in the church, it's going to cause a split in the church. If it's going to cause someone to say, I, I don't know if I want to associate with that. If it's going to cause someone to not be able to be bold in declaring their faith, if it's going to be able to not, it's going to cause someone to not be able to live out their faith with confidence because of this, that's a problem and you need to not do it. That's what Paul's saying. And that's what he says about this issue. You're sinning against your brother and sister you're, because you're not walking in love. Because that's the law, right? That's the sum of the law for a Christian. Love God. Love neighbor. Love God. Love your brother. Love each other as, as I have loved you, Jesus says. That's my new commandment. That's our law. So yeah, everything's lawful, as he's going to bring up later in chapter 10. And he's already said with regard to sexual immorality. It's lawful, but that doesn't mean you should do it. You need to walk in love towards each other. And if it's going to cause your brother and sister to not be able to join you in worship, or if it's going to cause them to not be as close to Christ as they would have been otherwise, stop it. That's what Paul has to say about it. So my question is, uh, as, we, as we look ahead to chapter 9, he's going to give some examples from his own life about giving up such rights. And then he's going to come back and reiterate the issue in chapter 10 and, and relate it to those outside the church as well. Uh, but my question to you is, what issues does this apply to in your life? What issues do we need to look at as the church and say, you know what, that's causing division in the church. I'll give up my rights for the unity of the body. That's causing others to stumble. That's causing others to fall away from the faith. That's causing others to say, if that's what a Christian is, I can't be one. That's causing others to not be able to boldly proclaim their faith because they're associated with me and me acting like this. That's causing others to not be able to invite friends to church because they know I'm there. What issues in your life are doing that? I invite you to, to pray and ask God that question. Pray with me. 
And let's ask him together. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word, and I thank you for its clarity. I thank you that if we really listen with spiritual ears, that we can understand what you're saying. Lord, I pray for myself and for everyone who hears this, that you would show us what areas in our life this principle applies to. Show me, God, what things I do that cause others to stumble. Show me the things that, yeah, I may have every right to behave in that way or to do those things or to have those things, but it's going to cause somebody else problems with their relationship with Christ or it'll cause problems with the unity of the church. God, I pray that you'll show me these things. Show those listening to me these things. And then give us wisdom for how to handle each individual issue because these are not cut and dry things. But what is cut and dry is that you want us to walk in love. Help us to do exactly that, to love each other and love you, knowing that you first loved us and gave up your right to life so that we can live. Thank you again, and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, thanks for joining me, y'all. And uh, I hope you'll pray about this. I invite you to pray about it daily uh, until the next time we, we can get together, and we'll look at the next chapter and, and apply this even further. But I think it's a huge issue in the church and in our society, and it's one we need to address. So until next time, God bless you, and I look forward to being with you again.